I have on the line Professor Michael Farrell, who is Director of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Michael also ran a clinical community addiction service in South London for over 20 years. Michael is here to discuss with us whether doctors should be prescribing cannabinoids for patients with chronic problems. Michael, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Let's start with some definitions. Your article on bmj.com specifically refers to cannabinoids. Now, does that also include products of the cannabis plant, such as marijuana and hash? Well, what we've tried to do is make clear that cannabis is any product from the plant and it's usually smoked or it can be eaten for its psychoactive effects and it's really a straightforward plant and the when we talk about cannabinoids where it's a term we usually use to refer to compounds that activate cannabinoid receptors and these these can include marijuana kind of but it's we usually talk about them in relation to um these the synthetic cannabinoids, but also in relation to the more recently developed medical extracts from cannabis plant, such as nabiximols, which are, is a patented form with a trade name called Sativex that is actually produced in the United Kingdom. So you've got cannabis plants and then you've got cannabinoid is the active component in which you may have nabiximols or you may have synthetic drugs like uh, dronabinol or nabilon. Now, just to make it a little bit more complicated, um, the active component of cannabis is tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, and you'll hear people refer to THC, um, and that's, again, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a drug that is, acts as an agonist on cannabinoid receptors. Okay. Uh, and in your article, you make the point that while cannabinoids refers to the whole spectrum of compounds, whether the plant products on the one hand to synthetic products on the other, but that you will uh, specifically refer to in the article um, uh, those pharmaceutical drugs uh, that are either medical extracts or synthetic drugs. So um, let's run with that definition, shall we, for the podcast as well? Sure. Okay, so um, we know that this is highly controversial because the legalities of prescribing cannabinoids um, uh, also uh, can't be ignored and different countries and indeed different jurisdictions within countries vary enormously. Yes, indeed. Um, And of course, it's a rapidly changing situation where you now have actually very recently two states in the United States that have legalized cannabis, that is um, Colorado and Washington. And um, you also had the situation in a number of states, in actual fact 20 states, and medical cannabis was available. And medical cannabis is quite different than the what we've talked about in relation to these medications, this is where people can go into um, these special centres and buy uh, cannabis for smoking or for taking in different ways. So it's quite confusing, but if we look at 
in terms of approved medical use of tetra, tetra THC and the biximals, we see that there's there's approval for controlling nausea and vomiting in cancer chemotherapy and radiotherapy in the USA. There is approval for stimulating appetite in patients with AIDS-related wasting disease in the USA. And there's approval for chronic neuropathic pain and muscle spasticity in multiple sclerosis in the UK. Okay, well, that's a very useful summary of uh, some of the legal indications. Let's talk about very briefly the evidence for these indications. Um, Taking the anti-emetic and appetite-stimulating effects of cannabis, how good is the evidence that it works for these uh, problems? It's probably worthwhile starting off by saying when we look at systematic reviews of a lot of areas, for instance, with antidepressants and the number of things we find that sometimes we come up with surprising results that suggest a much more modest effect than have been claimed. And um, this is partly to do with the difficulty of designing these studies. But that being said, if we look at the anti-emetic and appetite-stimulating effect, there's been a lot of interest in this area in relation to uh, THC and the other cannabinoids for a few decades, uh, particularly around cancer patients. And initially, some of the studies suggested that um, cannabinoids were more effective. What's become quite complicated about it is that the anti-nausea medication since then has improved substantially. From that point of view, it looks now like the benefits from some of the more effective anti-nausea medication indicate them as first line rather than cannabinoids. Okay. And what about its use uh, to stimulate the appetite in, for instance, HIV or AIDS rather? Again, again, the, the studies on that actually showed were fairly equivocal. But the, the, the key issue has been that with the development of the antiretroviral medication and the broader treatments to prevent um, the progression of HIV-AIDS, um, it, it has made their role um, much less significant. So again, their usage is, is, is um, not very prominent anymore. So just to summarize, um, newer treatments have really uh, reduced the role of cannabinoids in treating nausea and vomiting and to stimulate the appetite. Yes, and but there may be a role for adjuvant use, so you're using the main, the first-line drugs, but some people may opt to um, back it up with um, some cannabis or cannabinoids. Okay. Now, you've mentioned their use in multiple sclerosis where the effects are on muscle spasticity and or neuropathic pain. Uh, can you tell us how effective the evidence tells us this is? Yes, unfortunately, the evidence is pretty modest. There's been a mixture of studies, but the overall results suggest that um, there is some modest benefit, but it, it is, is definitely modest. And um, there's no strong effect in, in, the, in the main studies. Again, um, part of the issue in this is, is methodological quibbles around some of the studies. 
Um, but that that is probably the clearest summary of um, the situation at the moment. Okay. Does it do cannabinoids have a role in other sorts of neuropathic pain? Well, they they have been they have been tested in other like HIV and AIDS related neuropathic pain, and the results are pretty similar. Um, and there've also been there's been a lot of interest in them in other forms of chronic pain, um, and again, um, it's a difficult area to study because um, methodologically it can be um, quite subjective. But unbalanced, the, the view that the the, uh, the effects reported are modest in size. Okay. Now let's move on to adverse effects of these drugs. What are the most common ones? Well, the, the most common adverse effects for people when they take cannabinoids or cannabis can be the subjective effects, anxiety, um, feelings of discomfort, and um, simple subjective effects that while somebody used to taking cannabis might enjoy, people who are not used to it at all can find them quite aversive. So they're the immediate effects, um, th- those types of subjective effects. We have also obviously um, concerns about longer term effects and probably the one, and, and, the, and the data on this is very weak because obviously in the context of um, medical use, we haven't got groups that have been studied for long-term effects, so we're projecting. But our concern would be um, that some people might develop um, a habit or a dependence on cannabis, and of course they may develop some of the mental health complications that we recognize are associated with um, modest to heavy and long-term cannabis use. What are some of these mental health effects? Well, the, we have particularly concern around um, people with a history of um, family history of serious mental health effects that uh, you might get a psychotic illness. The um, <clears throat> and that, that clearly is a, is, a, is a very serious complication. Um, it's it's a well discussed topic around cannabis in general. It's not without controversy, um, but it clearly is a side effect that we must look out for and be mindful of. Mm. Okay, and you mentioned uh, cannabis dependence earlier. Uh, I realize the data on this is going to be scarce and, and possibly extrapolated from recreational use, but do you have any sense of the uh, prevalence of this or how often it might happen? in people who take uh, can- cannabis or cannabinoids regularly? The sort of figure that's used in terms of general cannabis consumption is that it's possible for, in terms of regular cannabis users, about one in 10 to develop um, cannabis dependence. But that's, again, um, far, that's not in the therapeutic population. And I think the issues in the therapeutic population are probably quite different. We know, for instance, with opiates, when we use opiates um, in the in the pain and the therapeutic context, that the rates of development of opiate dependence are much lower 
than they would be in the general population. It's, it's a pretty evolving area. Okay. Now, we know that in regular smokers of cannabis, uh, people can develop chronic lung conditions or respiratory problems. Is that, uh, has that been documented as a problem with cannabinoid use? Well, if you're, if you're taking um, orally medication, that will not be a complication. But where people are actually accessing plant product and smoking it, they will have the same sorts of problems. And clearly we need to be sensible about this. You know, somebody who has a fairly terminal condition who's using some of these things um, has a different order of issue around long-term complications than somebody with a condition that's likely to be lifelong but uh, not affect uh, the lifespan. Okay. So this is clearly a field that's uh, ripe for further research, uh, particularly uh, into the uh, benefits and, and the possible adverse effects of therapeutic use of cannabinoids. In the meanwhile, though, doctors will be eager to know what to say uh, to patients who come in asking about uh, using cannabinoids for their chronic problem. Yeah, I mean, this is a very important area for clinicians and they will meet people with um, chronic disturbing conditions who um, uh, want to see if this condition can be helped by either cannabis or uh, cannabinoid uh, medication. Now, um, I think one of the important points here is probably for people to get a realistic notion of what, what, how they might work. And it's quite useful for doctors to be able to explain it in terms of, and for them also to realize that the um, evidence isn't strong. However, I have no doubt that um, some people will come with a view and a conviction that that's what they want and they want a way to get it. Now, the doctor's then in a slightly complex situation, which is, one, are they being asked to prescribe something for an indication that is not yet licensed? If they're being asked to prescribe, for instance, for an indication that is licensed, it's reasonably straightforward. It may, uh, one of the issues may be cost, and depending on where they are, um, cost may be a factor, because Sativex and the big smalls are not cheap. But on top of that, um, the, the other situation is likely to be that somebody is, has access to and they've bought um, cannabis for smoking. And in that context, um, they're, and they're reporting um, benefit from it. And I think at that point, the doctor's faced with the thing of trying to clarify with the patient who's um, responsible for what and, and at that point the patient is actually making their own decision um, I think at that point it's worthwhile checking quite what the benefits are pointing out what might be some of the adverse effects and to uh, make somebody aware if, if they are developing adverse effects um, and what action they would need to take from that point of view um, I've come across quite a number of people who've reported benefits for use of it with um, particularly chronic pain. 
and that's in association with other medication and um, in that context particularly where people are having difficult to control pain um, it, it, it can be uh, people can feel it's a lifesaver I think the problem is to make sure as with when one was prescribing anything for chronic pain um, sometimes the immediate effects are quite positive but the effect wears off quite quickly and it's quite important in the context of polypharmacy and multiple medication to be keeping an eye on that. So um, what doctors are faced with often are complex clinical situations where that are responding poorly to treatment and they're adding in additional interventions and one of the risks of that of course is um, more side effects and adverse reactions so they've got to be quite mindful of that. Yes, it's as you say, it's it's a little more straightforward when uh, a product is legally available and the indication is an approved one. But uh, as you say, we uh, are tre- we have to tread a little more carefully where we're being asked about unapproved or off-label label indications. And your article makes it very clear that clinicians should avoid taking this medical legal responsibility. But clearly, um, patients these patients are often uh, having to live with very difficult, complex, chronic uh, problems um, with many symptoms. And, and it's so important, isn't it, to, to be uh, non-judgmental in our approach towards them. Um, and as you say, um, exploring um, the patient's perceptions of benefits and, and any harms or any side effects they might be experiencing, as you would with any um, uh, medication or agent that the patient is taking, is, is crucial. Uh, as well as um, explaining, if, if they're interested, uh, what we know about uh, the evidence for benefits and, and possible harms. Michael, thank you for this very helpful summary of the role of cannabinoids in treating people with chronic problems. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this. That was Professor Michael Farrell, who's Director of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. If you'd like to know more about when and how to prescribe cannabinoids for patients with chronic problems, The article is available on bmj.com.